All right, well, welcome. My name is Brandon. I am one of the pastors here at River City. Good to be with you. Uh, If you are new or visiting, just want to say welcome to you guys. It's good to have you here. Uh, This summer, we have been studying uh, the book of Proverbs. And uh, for the first few weeks of our study, we're really an introduction to the book of Proverbs. And what we saw is that Proverbs is all about helping us grow in wisdom, We saw that Proverbs defines wisdom, not like a lot of the ways that we think about, but rather Proverbs defines wisdom as skill in godly living. Proverbs defines wisdom as skill in godly living. So wisdom isn't really about what you know. Wisdom is about who you know. Because wisdom, as Proverbs over and over and over outlines for us, wisdom begins with knowing God. And so what it means to be wise, then, is to increasingly reflect the image and the character of God in how we think and how we live. That's the definition of what it means to be wise. It's not just knowing something intellectually, but it's reflecting the character and the image of God in the way that we think and in how we live. And Proverbs has a lot to teach us about what it means to be wise and what it looks like for us to reflect God's image and character in a lot of different areas of our lives. Areas like our parenting or our work or our finances, things like our friendships and how we deal with conflict and how we speak, how we use words and in the way that we deal with lots of different emotions. Proverbs is incredibly practical and it shows us what it looks like to be wise in a lot of those kinds of areas. But what we saw last week was that at the root of whether or not we become wise or we just remain simple or remain foolish in all these areas is that it comes down to what's going on in our hearts. We saw Proverbs twenty three nineteen tells us, listen, my son, be wise, set your heart on the right path. Proverbs four twenty three we saw warned us, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. I quoted Tim Keller last week when I said this. In the Bible, the heart is used as a metaphor for the seat of our most basic orientation. It's the direction of our heart then that controls everything. It's our thinking and our feeling and our decisions and our actions. And so whatever we cherish in our hearts controls the whole person. In the end, we always do what our heart wants most. And so what we said is that because the direction of our heart determines the directions of our lives, we've got to pay close attention to what's going on in our hearts. We've got to pay close attention to what our hearts long for most, what our hearts want most, what our our hearts desire most. In other words, what we've got to do is we've got to pay close attention to what our heart is worshiping. You see, the bottom line is that our hearts will always worship something. There will always be an overwhelming, controlling influence in our hearts and in our lives. And it's either going to be God or it's going to be something else. What the Bible tells us is when, when we worship something else, when something else other than God is the controlling influence of our lives, that's called an idol. That's the definition of what an idol is. And so when Proverbs 4.23 tells us, guard your hearts... What Proverbs 4 is is telling us, it's saying, guard your heart from idols. Guard your heart from worshiping something other than God. Guard your heart from longing for most and loving most and desiring most something other than Him. And so what we said last week is that we've got to learn how to identify and defend our hearts against these idolatrous desires that are going to pull us away from wisdom and pull us away from God's will and His work in our lives. 
And we said last week that the first step in defending against, just like the first step in defending against any disease is identifying what it is and how it works, the first step in defending against the disease of idolatry in our own hearts is learning how to diagnose what we're worshiping and how it's getting worked out in our lives. And we said the way that we do that is by examining our attitudes and our actions and our behaviors, by looking at our emotions. Proverbs twenty-seven nineteen says it this way, As water reflects the face, so one's life reflects the heart. It's saying our actions, our attitudes, our behaviors, our emotions, they're not the real problem. They're just symptoms that reflect the real disease going on in our hearts. And so if we want to identify, if we want to diagnose what the real problem is, we look at the symptoms. We start at the symptoms. It's like if you want to know what kind of a tree some tree is, you look at the fruit on the tree. You see the fruit of the tree, and it shows you what the tree is. It shows you what's going on. And so the attitudes and the actions, the behaviors, the things in our lives, they reveal what we really desire. They reveal what our hearts really worship. And this morning what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at one of those symptoms. We're going to take a look at one of those symptoms that reveals something about what's going on in our heart. And it's one that all of us deal with. This morning we're going to take a look at what Proverbs has to say about anger. As we study God's word this morning, what I want us to see is that just like water reflects the face, so too what makes us angry reflects what our hearts love most. What makes us angry, it reflects what our hearts love most. And if we're going to be wise, if we're going to reflect God's image and his character in the way that we deal with anger, then we're going to need to learn how to diagnose and defend our hearts against the real source of anger. And so with that in mind, let's pray. We'll dive into our study of God's word this morning. Jesus, as we come to your word this morning, what we say is, God, we need you. God, we don't have, on our own, we don't have the ability to rightly understand or for me to rightly teach. God, I don't have what I need outside of you. And so, God, as we come to study your word this morning, we, God, God, we come with grateful hearts, grateful that you have given it to us so we might know you. God, but we come with dependent hearts, saying that we, we can't know you without you revealing yourself to us. And so, God, we, we ask that through your word this morning you would. Pray that you'd empower me by your spirit so that I might teach rightly from your word, that our time together would be fruitful and good for us, that it would ultimately be about your glory. God, we just say that none of that happens without you doing the work in us. And so, God, we come and we say we need you. We are so grateful that you long to meet us in that. And so we look forward to how you will reveal yourself to us and show us who you are and what you're like. And we we look forward to the ways that you will call and change our hearts in light of your word this morning. We pray these things in your good name. Amen. Amen. Well, it was a few years ago, I remember uh, hearing about a place called the Anger Room. It's a, it was a new business at the time in Dallas, Texas, where you could, go, you could go and get your anger out. And for 25 bucks, you'd get five minutes with a baseball bat in an enclosed room filled with a bunch of stuff for the express purpose of smashing. Their motto, bold and on their website, come in, break stuff, leave happy. And I thought to myself, hmm, that seems like my kind of place. <laughs> I feel like I need that in my life every once in a while, right? And these days, places like the Anger Room, they're popping up all over the country and all over the world, actually. And when asked about why Anger Rooms are becoming all the rage, I did not make that question up. Guarantee you that reporter was like, nailed it, right? When asked about why Anger Rooms were becoming all the rage... One owner responded this way. He said, anger is an instinct, and the cool thing about addressing an instinct is that everyone's got it. 
You see, there is this traditional view that there are two types of people, people who get angry and people who just don't. But the truth is that everybody gets angry. We just express it in different ways. In contrast to that traditional view, one researcher notes this. She says, we separate people differently now. We use categories like this into those, we hold, those who hold rage in and those who express it out. What that researcher is saying is that we all get angry. For some of us, it looks like outbursts of yelling or rage or, or, or worse. For others, it's a silent, passive aggressiveness. It's just giving the cold shoulder to the people that are around us. It's becoming cold and detached and distant. Anger rooms, they're marketed as places that promote a no-judgment environment where you can, they, they say you can come lash out, break stuff, and then just leave. One anger room on their website, it simply says this, no questions, no consequences, no cleanup. But, but are there really no consequences to just venting our anger? Is, there, is that really a good way to deal with anger? And this is probably not going to shock anybody, uh, but the research pretty much plainly says, no, no, it's not, it's, that's not how it works. That's not actually good. The catharsis theory of aggression maintains that if people are able to vent their frustration or their anger, then their anger will decrease. And that theory's been around for decades, and research debunking that theory has been around for basically as long as the theory itself. The research, what the research really shows is that people who express aggression towards the source of their frustration, their aggressive drive may decrease in the moment but their likelihood of being aggressive in the future will actually increase. This is shown over and over and over by lots of different studies. You see, the first anger room, it was started because the owner wanted to try to solve the problem of destruction that she was seeing in her neighborhood from people venting their anger in unhealthy ways. And what she was noticing wasn't anything new. Anger causes lots of problems. Proverbs 14, 17 says it this way, a quick-tempered person does foolish things. Proverbs 27.4, anger is cruel and fury is overwhelming. Who can stand before jealousy? Proverbs 29.22, an angry person stirs up conflict. A hot-tempered person commits many sins. Proverbs 30.33, for as churning cream produces butter and as twisting the nose produces blood, so stirring up anger produces strife. Anger is destructive. Anger is like anger is one of those things that just destroys it destroys friendships it destroys relationships it destroys families it destroys it destroys so much we've all seen or experienced the effects of anger when when you're angry you do and you say things that are incredibly foolish and are incredibly destructive because anger is consuming it consumes us sometimes And what the research shows us is that venting our anger is not going to solve the problem. Proverbs tells us the same thing, but for a lot cheaper than funded research does. It says, 28.11, says, fools give full vent to their rage, but the wise bring calm in the end. You see, when we vent our anger, that's that's not solving the problem. You see, venting our anger, it doesn't solve the problem. At best, it's a temporary fix. And at worst, what it actually does is fuel the fire of our anger. Dr. Jennifer Harston, she notes this. She says, you cannot live in the anger room. Venting our anger is like trying to treat the symptoms without addressing the disease. It won't solve the problems because it's not dealing with the real 
problem. It's not getting at the heart. It's not getting at the why. There's another study that was done a few years later that found that uh, those who evaluated the source of their anger tended to experience a decrease in anger, which suggests that analyzing why we are angry can be more reliably help us to decrease our feelings of anger, and while acting out in anger appears to increase it, either in the short term or the long term. And so the question that both research and the Bible urge us to answer, instruct us to answer, that say that's the most important for us to answer, is the why. It's the why behind what fuel is our anger. Why do we get angry? What is underneath it? What's behind the anger that we have? What is the real problem? And like we talked about last week, Proverbs tells us it all comes down to what's going on in our hearts. Remember, Proverbs 4.23, everything you do, it flows from what's going on in your heart. Proverbs 27.19, your life is a reflection of your heart. So the question is, what is our anger reflecting? What is our anger revealing? What is it showing us about what the direction of our hearts is headed You see, anger is not an original emotion. Anger is always a response to something. You don't wake up angry. You get angry. And it's always in a response to something, whether it's what someone else does or says or what you do or say or even how you interpret what someone else does or says. So what is our anger a response to? One author says it this way, I think, just so helpfully. He says, anger is our response to whatever endangers something we love. Anger is our response to whatever endangers something we love. That's not always a bad thing, right? For example, it's okay to be angry with the drunk driver who is endangering your family as they drive. The Bible doesn't tell us anger, all anger is wrong. In fact, there's a number of examples where Jesus himself, who, who expressly, we're told over and over, is perfect, where Jesus gets angry. And so anger itself is not wrong. Anger itself is not the problem. The problem is what our anger usually reveals is not a love for God and a worship of him, but an ultimate love, a worship of someone or something else. St. Augustine, he wrote it this way. He said, our anger often reveals a disordered affection. A disordered affection, a disordered love. What we do is we love something more than we love God. And when we love something more than we love God, it has a cascading effect in our lives. Everything is out of order when he is not the thing of preeminent love in our hearts and in our lives. This is something that God's really been graciously pointing out in my own heart. I would say over the last six months, but especially in the last two weeks as I've been preparing to preach on what Proverbs has to say about the heart and this week about anger. Uh, my folks, they often come to me, they ask me for advice on technology. Maybe your parents do too. Um, but what often happens, it feels like, is that when I give them advice, they don't really take that advice. They kind of just do whatever they were going to do anyways, which drives me insane. Last year, they were thinking about getting new phones, and they asked me, Brandon, what, what kind of phones do you think we should get, and what, what kind of carrier do you think we should get? What should we do? And, and so based on a number of factors and doing the research and finding the deals, I, I, I gave them a recommendation, and I, I never really heard back about it. And when they came for Christmas, I was just about to head out the door to come to church on Sunday, and I saw my mom's new phone sitting on the counter. It was not the one that I had recommended. In fact, it was the one I told them not to get. 
I pretty much lost it. In the five seconds it took me to get from the counter to through the garage and into my car, I had went from like zero to rage mode, right? And in that anger-induced fog, I sped out of the driveway, not realizing that there was another car parked in the driveway, and I got in a car accident with my dad's car on the way out of the driveway. And what was more upsetting to me is than even causing that accident was the fact that the reason it got caused is because I was so consumed with anger, like I was literally yelling in my car, in the garage. I was consumed by anger. It was a few days later that I was talking with, about the situation with Aaron, and he was just asking me, why do you think you got so angry about that? And I was trying to explain to him why I was frustrated because I spent lots of time and energy looking at all these things for my folks. It just feels like they don't take my advice sometimes. And he responded by saying, that sounds, that sounds some, he said something like this, like, that sounds really frustrating. Um, do you think that's really what's making you so angry? That's, it seems like there's something deeper going on there. And just like, obviously, yes, there was. <laughs> But I was too angry to wrestle with that. I was too angry to even ask those deeper questions. And so as we talked, what I realized was that the root of my anger was that the root of the whole thing was, was a power idol that God had been showing me over the last few months that it was beginning, how, how the far-reaching effects of that were, were affecting my life. You see, worshiping power is about wanting influence and control over other people and letting your identity get wrapped up in whether or not you have that. And I would never say that's what I want out loud, but functionally, that's what my heart desires. That's what our heart longs for. And for me, that gets worked out in wanting other people to do things the way I want them to do it. It looks like wanting other people to accept my advice or counsel or even just to just agree with me. And when people don't do that stuff, oftentimes what happens is I'll get angry You see, frustration would be an understandable reaction for anybody whose advice is just totally disregarded. But fuming anger? No, that that reveals something else. That reveals something deeper was going on in my heart. Tim Keller, says it this way, Anger is love in motion to deal with a threat towards that which you really love. Look at the things that get you the most angry, and you will see what your heart loves most. You see, the thing my anger was revealing in my my own heart, the thing my anger revealed that what I loved most was power. What I longed for most was influence. What I cared about most was being respected and being appreciated for the things that I had done. Like St. Augustine said, I had disordered affections. I had disordered loves. What happens is our disordered affections, they always create disordered anger. I was so mad that I got in a car accident. For what? It took me months before I could even think about that situation without getting angry. Why? I wasn't even going to use the phones. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, it really does not matter. You see, what would happen, what everything was about was that the thing I loved was being attacked. The thing I cared about most was being attacked. The thing that I... The the power that I wanted, the influence that I longed for, the thing that I desired most was being attacked. I had everything to do with my heart, worshiping something other than Jesus, valuing and desiring and loving and longing for something most other than him. Our disordered 
affections. They always lead to disordered anger. So the question then is, what is the way out? The anger room's not going to work. Venting our anger is not going to work. Learning breathing techniques, that's not going to work. It's all just treating the symptoms. It's not dealing with the problem. So what is going to work? How do we actually become wise and reflect the image and the character of God in the way that we deal with anger? And last week, what we talked about, when we talked about guarding our hearts against idols, what we said is that that's first a defensive posture. It begins with diagnosing the real problem. We need to ask ourselves, what is really at the root of our anger? What makes us most angry reveals what we love most. For me, as I shared with you, that's often the thing that my anger often reveals is what I long for most, what I love most is power, its influence, its control over the decisions of others. But oftentimes what my anger often reveals is that my kids are getting in the way of my comfort idol. When you're a parent, it's really hard. One of the things that's just challenging about being a parent is that there are so many sacrifices that you make and you love your kids and it's absolutely worth it. Oftentimes, sometimes what I experience, I was just on a date yesterday with Emma. We were out doing some shopping and doing some things, and I found myself like, can we spend three seconds looking at one thing I'm trying to find out about, right? I was getting frustrated, and what I was, in that moment, I was just like texting Hannah and venting my anger about that. I was just like, can we just ever do anything by ourselves around here, right? And what I realized is that my disordered anger was revealing a disordered love. And so I texted Hannah, I said, what I need to do is I need to choose to enjoy my daughter because she's worth enjoying. She's worth loving. And so we just stopped looking for whatever junk we were looking for and we went to the arcade. And that was... That was life-giving. My kids are worth loving. Comfort is not. My dad is worth loving. Power is not. You see, what happens is, what our anger reveals is our disordered loves. What we need to do is we need to ask the questions about what our anger is revealing If you get angry when someone criticizes you or even when just someone gives you constructive feedback, maybe the love that your anger is defending might be the idol of approval. When you get angry when someone else's actions make your life difficult or they force you to change your plans, the love that your anger might be defending is the idol of control. There is always a superior love that is driving what we do. We need to learn to ask the questions about what our actions reveal, about what our hearts worship. If we never learn to diagnose the real problem, we'll never actually be able to overcome anger and to deal with it in a way that looks wise, in a way that reflects God's image and his character. You see, the first step in guarding our hearts is diagnosing the problem, but diagnosis is not enough. We've got to embrace repentance. You see, repentance is about acknowledging our sin and confessing it to God and to others. I've been talking with God about that issue I talked about, shared with you about the phones, my folks, for months. But it's taken me six months until this week to actually confess that to my dad. You see, anger is really easy to justify. 
There are a bunch of emails that I wrote to my dad that are now in the trash where they should be, where I lie to myself about what's really going on, where I try to justify my motivations for giving them certain advice by being about really what's caring for them most, about really what's best for them, where I try to justify my anger by explaining how their decisions make me feel. But none of that is actually true, and I knew that, which is why I never sent any of those emails. You see, what is true is that my anger was really about my power idol getting attacked. And until I was able to admit that to God and confess that to him, but also to my dad, I was never going to be able to move on past that. You see, repentance, it frees us to actually fight back against sin because it removes the power that sin has over us. Repentance, it takes us out of the cycle of, of shame and of condemnation that brings us, and it brings us to a place where we can actually fight sin without the blindfold on. This week when I sent my dad that email, that was, that was a hard email to write. <laughs> but I finally felt free to be able to do it. Because God had, like, just because I had been able to repent and turn that over to the Lord and to acknowledge what was really going on in my heart what was really at the source of that problem. Confess to him, Jesus, this is not worth worshiping, just you are. I feel like in those moments in the past few weeks, God's really freed up my heart to have like, the freedom to write those difficult things. And to not try to justify or blame shift or, or move the blame around, rather to own what was my fault. To take ownership of the anger that I had. You see, when we repent, when we confess our sins to God and to others, it frees us to actually fight against sin. And that brings us to what the next way that we guard our hearts against anger. We actually have to fight back. Like we said last week, when it comes to the heart, the best defense is a good offense. And the way, you see, Aaron said this a few weeks ago, we worship our way into sin and we worship our way out of it. You see, we change our actions when we change what we love most. We change our actions when we change what we worship most. And the way out of danger is, the way out of anger is to replace the source of our anger, the thing that we love most, with a superior affection. And we do that by setting our eyes on Jesus. You've heard me quote Tim Keller a few times this morning. God so graciously used a sermon that he preached a number of years ago in my heart and in my life this week. At the end of his sermon... As he always does, Keller brings it back around to the gospel. He says this, The way out of anger is to remember that on the cross, Jesus died for our disordered anger, for our disordered loves. And when you are melted by his love for you, then when others hurt you, you will be able to do the same. You can say, I have been wronged, but I have wronged God, and at infinite cost he responded with gentleness towards me. You see, we are freed to respond that way because he did it for us. This week, God's been mercifully causing those truths to sink deep into my heart. You see, seeing Jesus, knowing him, experiencing his love, it transforms our hearts and it makes us wise. It makes us wise as we think about anger in two ways. One, it transforms us to love the way that Jesus has loved us. When people hurt us, when they make us angry, when our response is, our response is often to want to hurt them back. Proverbs tells us, don't, don't do that. 
Out of anger, I wanted to make my parents feel bad for, taking, for not taking my advice, so I talked and acted in a way that made it really, really difficult for them to ask me for help. And I thought, good, that'll teach you. Next time you should just listen to me. You know what that is? That is wicked, sinful rebellion in my heart. That's what that is. That's the only thing that that is. You see, and on the cross, what we see is Jesus absorbing our disordered anger. First Peter 2 tells us this. When, they hurled, ins- when we, they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. It's by his wounds we have been healed. For all of us were like sheep going astray, but now we've returned to the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. Jesus absorbed our disordered anger so that we might love others as he has loved us. When we see Jesus absorbing the consequences for our rebellion, it shows us and it empowers us how to love others the way that he has loved us. It's only when our hearts are melted by his love for us that we love others the way he does, that we have power to overcome anger the way that he did. Jesus is the ultimate victim of unjust anger, right? Pilate offered to the people, you want Barabbas or Jesus, the people, what did they cry out? They said, crucify him. Jesus absorbed our disordered anger. And he did it out of love so that we might love and be loved by him. But seeing Jesus and knowing him and experiencing his love, it makes our hearts wise towards anger in a second way because it causes us to actually be angry the way that Jesus was angry. People often think that a God of love cannot get angry, but the truth is that a God who never gets angry when those he loved are attacks is not a God of love at all. God's love is not like ours. Over and over in the Old Testament, God's anger is not like ours. Over and over in the Old Testament, it says that God is slow to anger. Exodus 34, 6, when God is revealing himself to Moses, he says this, I am the Lord, compassionate, gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Psalms eighty six fifteen says, but you, Lord, are compassionate. You are gracious. You are slow to anger. You are abounding in love and faithfulness. That word that's translated slow to anger in those passages, it's translated in Proverbs as the word patient. Proverbs fourteen twenty nine says, whoever is patient, One who is slow to anger has great understanding. One who is quick-tempered displays folly. Proverbs 16, 32, better a patient person. Better one who is slow to anger than a warrior. One with self-control than one who takes a city. You see, patience is not the opposite of anger. Patience is anger dealt with rightly. Patience is anger that is slow. It's in the person and the work of Jesus that we see what it looks like to be angry wisely. We see the definition of what wisdom looks like as we approach anger. You see, Jesus was angry about the right things. He was angry in the temple because the place that was intended for the worship of God had become a place where the worship of greedy gain overshadowed it. 
John 2, 17, it describes Jesus' emotions in that moment as zeal for God's house. You see, Jesus' anger showed that what he loved most, what he cared about most, was God's holiness, God's worship, and his glory. Likewise, Ephesians 4 tells us, in your anger, do not sin. The ESV translates it more directly. It even says, be angry, but do not sin. One of the early church fathers summed it up best this way. I think he says, He that is angry without cause sins, and he who is angry when there uh, who he was not angry when there is cause also sins. For unreasonable patience is the hotbed of many vices. I think we often need to repent not just of our unwarranted anger, our unjust anger, but also our complacency regarding the things that Jesus showed us we should be angry about. We are often most angered when our identity is attacked. But oftentimes we don't bat an eye when the image of God is attacked in the oppression of other people and an injustice. That should break our hearts. What it reveals is that we love ourselves more than we love the Lord. And there's a call, an invitation for us to be a people who are characterized by repentance. Not just of our sins of commission, the things that we do that we shouldn't do, but our sins of omission when we, do the, when we don't do the things we are supposed to do. God's love and his anger is one that is just. You see, the patience of God's wisdom that Proverbs calls us to doesn't look like blowing up anger, even at, un, at, even at injustice. Rather, God's anger is characterized by a relentless opposition towards sin. God's, character, God's anger is characterized by a relentless opposition towards sin. It's a relentless opposition towards sin in our own lives and in our culture and in our society and the world around, in the world around us but it is a calm and relentless opposition. In communion, what we celebrate and what we remember is God's relentless opposition towards sin, his relentless opposition towards it so much that he would die to defeat it. When we take the drink, what we are reminding ourselves and each other of is Jesus' blood, which was shed for us as he paid the penalty for our disordered loves, for our disordered angers. When we take the bread together, what we're reminding ourselves and each other of is that Jesus' body was broken for us as in wisdom. He skillfully lived the life that we did not so that we could be credited with his righteousness, with his perfectly lived life, that we might be credited with his wisdom. And so communion is in the back, and you go during our time of worship whenever you're ready. You don't need to be excused. You go when, it's, when you feel ready. And you dip the juice, uh, you dip the bread in the juice, and you celebrate, and you take communion, and you remember all that Jesus has done. Because in communion, what we see is the ultimate picture of God's righteous anger towards sin in dealing with it, in paying the penalty of death. But what we also see is his unfailing love for sinners like you. It's when we see and we remember the goodness of the gospel that our hearts are transformed and that we become wise. And so as we take communion this morning, ask God that as you worship him, he would make you wise. Ask him to make the gospel beautiful to you. Ask him to show you your disordered loves, which are at the root of your disordered anger. 
Ask him to give you the humility that you need to repent, both to him and to others. And ask him to captivate your heart with Jesus. So that what you, so that what you long for most is him. What you desire most is him. What you love more than anything is him. You don't change that about your heart. God does it in you. Ask him that he would. Let's pray. Jesus, we just come to you. God, we need you to give us eyes that see our sin, to see the sin at the root of our anger. God, we just confess that, that all of us are angry. None of us are. None of us get a pass on that. Our anger just looks differently. It gets expressed differently. So God, we, we ask that you give us humble hearts that would enable us to be able to repent, to turn from sin and to turn towards you. God, and we ask that you might captivate our hearts with Jesus. God, would you make him beautiful to us? God, would you cause us to see him as this thing worth loving, as a superior affection that our hearts long for and that actually satisfies and gives life? God, would you show us where we are being foolish? And at the same time, God, would you show us your wisdom in the person and the work of Jesus so that we would become wise like him. God, we pray all of this, God, so that our joy might increase, that the good of others might abound as we reflect your character and your your goodness. Most of all, we pray that in all of this, you would get the glory. That as our lives reflect your, your image and your character, God, what people would see and would celebrate and would enjoy and cherish and worship is you. God, cause that to be true of us. Help us to worship you. Help us to call others to it as well. In your good name, amen.